Hello, and welcome to another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have Dr. Jesse Collins, psychotherapist coming from Trinity, Florida. And together, we're discussing the impact of spiritual abuse, how to process it, and moving on to a more fulfilling life. Jesse, today we have one of those subjects that, for me personally, it's incredibly interesting because, as you know, we have asked people to submit questions to us, and we received, you know, several questions. Many of them are concerning the area of manipulation, how and why, and what did they do to our heads, basically, which, you know, for me personally, when I first escaped the cult, it was extremely painful trying to get the stuff that's in my head out of my head. And it's been a lifelong journey since then of going through the process of doing this. And I explain it to people who are unfamiliar with this. For me, it's like, like the old switchboard in Andy Griffith where the ladies, you know, pulling the plugs out and I've got to rewire what they did in my head. But, you know, they they manipulated our heads in some very strange ways, and we believed some, <laughs> not going to lie, some very weird things. We just recently had a podcast come out where we're talking about the mythology in the message cult that I escaped from of the magic sword. <laughs> we literally believed that the prophet guy had a magic sword, and... So we've got some questions on how do, how did they do that to us? How did they make us believe in magic swords and whatnot? And when you consider the broader scope of cult manipulation, we've also uh, recently put a podcast out on David Berg and the Children of God. He convinced numerous people that it was divinely inspired to go flirty fishing, which is basically prostitution for God. And we've talked about Robert Gambura, who convinced all of his message cult believers that he was their spiritual husband. And, you know, Jim Jones, who convinced over 900 people to commit suicide with cyanide lace Kool-Aid recently in Kenya, the starvation to death. And there's just so much weirdness that they put in our heads. So people have asked us and I'm having you to help explain how did they make us believe these weird things? Well, um, they used a combination of tactics. Um, and it, if you see control as the, the base and the foundation of everything that a cult does, then it becomes clearer why they do what they do. In this case, um, the fear of hell was used frequently, right? And as Christians and believers, we should be concerned that we don't in engage behaviors that send us to hell, but we should be a lot more concerned with living our life as Christians. And if you're focused on trying to do the right thing and live your life as a Christian, you don't have to worry so much about hell because God has taken care of that for you. We're pretty fortunate in that aspect that he died for everybody, not just a small group of people in one little church, not just Baptists, not just Methodists, not just message people. He died for everybody. And so, <clears throat> in fact, you know, people often forget that the forgiveness applies to everybody, even Hitler could have fallen under his grace if he had accepted it. I don't think Hitler even believed in God, but um, as, even someone as evil as Hitler could have accepted the blood of Jesus Christ's forgiveness and been forgiven. Um, but they use the fear of hell and they use more common things like rejection. Nobody likes to be rejected. And everybody likes to feel an identity belonging to a group and so they would reinforce your sense of belonging by using uh, alternative forms of labeling. Notice that people within the group have a group name, a brother or sister. 
people outside the group, regular people, they don't get a special name. <laughs> and so if if you leave the group or you don't you don't do what the group said, then you are kicked out. And they very heavily preach that this church has the way, the truth, and the light, and everybody else is out in darkness. All the other denominations, all the other Protestant uh, churches of any type were not in the bride. And uh, so you, to be in the bride, you got to do what this church tells you to do. Otherwise, you're going to be, you know, somewhere you don't want to be. And you have to go through the tribulation, or maybe you just go to hell, or all kind of bad things. But if, as long as you do what we tell you to do, then you're good. You dress the way we tell you to dress, you're good. And we'll call you brother and sister. But and if you don't give the money, and you don't give the support, and you don't show up to the meetings, you could lose your special name. All of this fear of not belonging, fear of rejection, fear of... Oh my God, if I don't listen to what this pastor says, I'm going to hell. Um, and they tell you that flat out, that that is going to happen. All of these things are about control. And they used especially a definition of the special group of people in the bride, as a, and then asserting that that church had the only truth, the only answer. Now, this is not unique to the message. It's, it's go to any, any cult, it's all about control, okay? Just as a cult you just mentioned about the starvation cult, um, he had a, a signature way of convincing people that their eternal destiny was tied to doing what he said, which was to starve yourself to death. Now that's that's pretty powerful, charismatic person. That's immensely powerful. Jim yeah. Jones, again, really powerful with huge charisma, convincing people to do his will just to get to heaven. So uh, cult behavior is all about control. And it's all about doing what the group told you to do when you when you were told to do it. Um, there are um, studies that show people who perceive people that are in authority, and in this case, it's authority figure of God, right? There's a very famous Milgram experiment that was conducted after World War II to try to... Uh, understand why people who've been normal German citizens uh, became soldiers and did horrible things. And they were, before the war, they were regular people, but after the war, they they followed orders uh, and then acted in, in incredibly inhumane ways with uh, civilian murders, as we all know, as well-documented what they did. Well, the Milgram experiment was set up so that they had a, a test subject uh, who was grading somebody. They had an actor who they pretend in another room, they pretend to be shocked. And then the part, the person being tested, the test subject had a row of electronic switches and they had a man with a white coat there, the researcher, uh, who would just say, continue. And so if the guy, if the, if the actor, gave the wrong answer, the man was supposed to hit a switch and give him an electric shock. And the shocks went all the way from very small amount of shock all the way up to fatal. And the, and the person being tested didn't know that he was not really shocking the guy because the actor would scream and carry on and beg not to be shocked every time he shocked him. And all he was doing wrong was giving the wrong answer. And so when the person would resist, I don't want to shock him anymore. He's all he's doing is giving the wrong answer. The guy would say, continue, because he's, he has the authority of a white coat. And about 60, I think it was 68 or 60 some percent, I don't remember the exact percentage. He did this test many, many times, not just once. And he consistently found about 60 some percent of people would go all the way to kill just because they were being told to do it. And these were, none of them were criminal, none of them they were just regular people. So that's one scientific explanation for why people do what they do um, and his, his fear of going against authority was powerful enough that in their own perception, they killed a person on the authority of the white coat. So when you're looking at somebody who has a, um, authority, look at all of, the, 
all the cult leaders, they set themselves up as an authority of God not to be questioned. Just like the man in the white coat. Do what I said. Right. And then we'll talk. Right. right. Dr. Stephen Hassan, in his book, Combating Cult Mind Control, he defines it as the bite model of authoritarian control. Bite standing for behavior control, control of information, thought control and manipulation, emotional control and manipulation. And, you know, when you're in this, you really don't think that you're being controlled. You don't really see, you know, for us, it was a Pentecostal style cult. And so there were the rules on how women dress and how, you know, the women's long hair, etc. You really don't see that as behavioral control, but it is. There are a, a large number of people who follow and adhere to those rules without critically thinking, do they even believe those rules? So they're just told to do it. So they do it very similar to the guy who's shocking, you know, the man, the, the actor in the other room. Right. And for me, the big thing is this in levels, there are varying levels of destructiveness in a destructive cult. And those that use fear, as the means to quickly accelerate themselves to a point of authoritarian control. In my opinion, those are so far more destructive. And one of one of the big events this year that I'm really, really looking forward to is the movie Oppenheimer, talking about the, you know, the development of the nuclear bomb. Because in the book that I'm working on right now, and in the study that I've done in the past 10 years, there's a huge significance in binding the fear of not the original atomic bomb, but once it was detonated, they started talking about making the super bomb, you know, exploding. The nuclear explosion of hydrogen was considered a super bomb that was a thousand times the blast. And what happened after they started developing this, you had all of these evangelists in the United States, we're talking hundreds and thousands of evangelists who are proclaiming the end of the world is coming, repent or else. And they basically built this whole platform of fear. And it started because it was a real fear as a world, you know, a world conflict, right? That fear started emerging in various ways into the different churches. The healthy churches did what you described about, you know, look, if you're a Christian, look to Christ for your answer, look for your, your safety in Christ. And they're the, the real Christians were just preaching the simplicity of the gospel. There's no need to fear. Jesus will save you. But there were a large number of wolves in sheep's clothing that were basing their entire strategy on you're going to die or else join our movement and basically adhere to these rules and we will control you and then you can get to heaven. So it was that big of a difference. And for us, when we left this movement, we're still living that fear from the 50s and 60s because we're playing these recordings over and over and over again. When we entered into a new church, there was the absence of fear. And to all of the listeners who've never been involved in this, they'll think, oh, that's a wonderful thing. There's no fear, right? But for us, it was extremely uncomfortable not having sermons that were whipping us, <laughs> whipping our minds with fear. And it, that leads us into the next question. How do you build a community after leaving and overcome these boundaries? For us, when we entered the new community, we were actually significantly uncomfortable with not having those whips and chains in the back of our minds. So how do you overcome this? Well, um, I see this um, question as, as being correlated with the question on trust. Um, we, we learn, and the person didn't say exactly what they meant by community, but learning to trust is how you build a community. And that takes interaction, it takes respectful interaction, it takes honesty, it takes sincerity, and it takes believing in yourself. So the number one problem that cult survivors have is learning to trust themselves again because they've been relying on somebody else to tell them when they were good or not good or 
within the guardrails or outside the guardrails. And like you said, the psychological whippings had become normalized as a way of making sure that I'm inside the guardrails. And so now that you're, you know, trying to live a life uh, outside of the cult, then you have to, A, trust yourself, okay? Your instincts, your belief sets, you've discovered no longer match those of the cult. So don't second guess yourself. Believe that you're going to get guidance uh, of God on the path you should take. And... And as you continue on that path, you have to trust yourself that your instincts are good. You can read, you can educate yourself outside the cult and begin to grow your knowledge um, and, and use wisdom and judgment about who you make friends with. Uh, are people outside of the cult, who are the people that you respect? There's going to be a bunch of them, right? Whether you're the work colleagues or other friends you met in non-cult uh, endeavors, uh, look at how these people are living their life and begin uh, to reach out because um, if you want a friend, the way to get friends is to be a friend and be a sincere friend and a, and a kind friend. People will recognize that. They will value that and, and they will value the connections that you are providing to them because everybody has their own gifts that we're, we were all given gifts to carry out God's mission here on earth, whatever those are. Some people are uh, physicians or nurses or attorneys or engineers or moms and dads and construction workers we all we all have gifts and uh, he gave us all different gifts because he needs us to do different jobs um, but by trusting people using good judgment begins with trusting yourself and not second guessing yourself because second guessing is how you wind up back in the clutches of the cult because they will feed into that second guessing, trust me. And you want to um, try to try to build a circle where your gut instinct is telling you, okay, I can trust this person, I can't trust this person. Because your gut instinct is your friend, and it's thousands and thousands of years of survival. You'll know when you're talking to somebody, okay. And they will the words and actions will either match up or they won't. And if they don't, then, okay, well, we have to find somebody else to be in our community. Right. Trust for me, I've come to learn that trust is something that is earned, not given. In other words, we were trained and manipulated to believe that no matter what the authoritarian figure said on doctrine and scripture, he was the one that we trust and our guards were down. We did not critically think about it. And then when we leave and we escape and our mind starts to heal, there's this tendency to at first try to apply this to whoever is the new pastor or leader or whoever's the one who you look up to the most, right? And then suddenly you get this realization, wait a minute, <laughs> I was extremely manipulated. So then there's this barrier that forms in your mind between whoever it is that you're with. Sometimes it's sometimes it's between you and the leader. Sometimes it's even between your colleagues. And I've learned that it takes time. Whenever we first escaped, I trusted no one. <laughs> I didn't care who they are. But over time, you learn that trust can be earned, and it, it works both ways. You have to also be trustworthy for people to share this trust with you. So for me, it's, it's, a, it's a pattern that you have to develop and re really have to work at it. It's not something that is just going to happen unless you put some effort into it. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things that people have asked somewhat relating to trust, there are a significant number of people who experienced sexual trauma in the churches that they were in. I first came in contact with this probably about 2000, maybe 12, 2013, but I was, I was a little surprised. There were a large number, as with any church, of sexual crimes being covered up, but in in this authoritarian control structure there it's not only swept under the rug but the victims are the one victimized 
I have spoken, I, I know several people actually who they were physically or sexually abused by their spouse and the minister, especially if it was a woman who was abused, the minister would actually tell the abused victim that it's their fault and that they need to submit to the authority of their spouse. And usually, again, usually this is the woman that this is the case. But there's a large number of people where this has happened and they've reached out you know, for help. And this is a help that I personally can't give. This is something bigger than what I can handle. So we've had people ask, what are some resources? How can you overcome this? This also ties to the trust. How can you trust again in a new relationship? It's a very loaded question, Jesse, but how, how can we offer some sort of help to these people? Uh, fortunately, there is a ton of help. And so I encourage anybody that's experienced this, what you were describing was a kind of a combination of domestic violence and sexual abuse and physical abuse. I encourage people to search online particular resources for the type of abuse that they suffered. Now there's domestic violence resources in local communities and online, um, and there's sexual abuse survivors resources, both online and um, in, in your local community. Um, here in uh, Tampa, for example, not only can you Google uh, your particular abuse situation and get both national, state, and local resources for that particular situation, we have many communities have uh, resources that we have. It's called uh, 411. You can call 411 and get whatever type of assistance you need. They got local counselors uh, as well as online. So I encourage you to not hesitate reach out to the resources particular to your situation, whatever you're more comfortable with in an online format or uh, from the safety of your home or a local um, um, shelter that's offering assistance. Especially for those with domestic violence, um, you can get shelter, you can get out of that situation and get a safety plan going. Uh, and I encourage anybody who's been abused in physical or sexual or psychologically, contact uh, resources like myself, who are psychotherapists, who can help you with that and to get you back to a, a state of mental health so you can have the quality of life you want. Um, uh, these are really broad categories of abuse and stuff that we're talking about here. So um, you, you can find counselors online and on ground, depending on your personal preference. And if you go to psychology today, for example, and find a therapist, you can find a therapist in your local community. If you prefer to go to an office, a lot of therapy is available for just about anything you want to imagine uh, is available online. Um, and usually it'd be somebody that's licensed in whatever state you live in. Um, but the key is um, and you can also, if you wound up needing medication, there's find a psychiatrist online, all um, from Psychology Today. And, and they verify on that site, everybody that's listed on their profile, they verify that the license is current and that they are who they say they are. Uh, so that's an advantage um, for the Psychology Today listings. I'm listed in there. Um, I, I, I'm licensed in the state of Florida. So I help people in the state of Florida, but um, that's changing. Next year, they're going to have a, a compact just like they have for nurses and people that are licensed in compact states can, can talk to anybody in another compact state. So that's, that's going to change a lot next year. Uh, but the key is don't hesitate to reach out. Don't hesitate to ask for help. And if you if you select a psychotherapist and you're, interacting with them and you don't feel like you're clicking with them or they're quite quite who you need don't hesitate to say okay let me go find somebody else because therapists are like pairs of shoes right and there's nothing wrong with a given pair of shoes but it may not be the right shoes for you so just go find a, a pair of shoes that do fit sometimes people will just give up after the first therapist that didn't click with it or didn't feel that the therapist understood their issue and there are plenty of therapists that specialize in sexual trauma, physical trauma, PTSD, all kinds of stuff. So 
the help is available, I encourage you to go get it. And you can begin uh, right at your keyboard um, and, and in your local community. One thing I'll add to that, among those who have suffered that type of abuse, there have been some who have contacted us and they were suicidal. And my answer to them, which is the same answer I'll give here, if you are, you need to call the suicide hotline immediately, talk to them. You can Google suicide hotline, you can find it, and don't hesitate to get counseling, you know, if you're in this situation, because this is something, this is not worth throwing your life away over. <laughs> this is, this was a cult. They were abusing you. They were manipulating you and you can overcome. So <clears throat> along with the sexual abuse and physical abuse, there's also a very strong level of emotional abuse. And that's a category that not many people really think about. We were in manipulation, you almost cannot be manipulated without having some sort of emotional abuse. And especially in religious context, whenever your entire world is wrapped around this false theology that, that you're in, any sort of conflicting information to this theology, they will emotionally abuse you to try to corral you to whatever is the theme for the cult in question. So there's a heavy, heavy level of emotional abuse. And <clears throat> whenever people pose a threat to whatever is the cult, in our case, I just simply asked a couple of questions to my grandfather, who was the pastor of the head church. All I did was ask some questions. And they, they, for me, they were real questions. For him, I'm learning now they were threats to the existence and survival of the cult because there were no answers. Immediately after asking these questions, he turned us over to Satan for the destruction of our flesh. And, you know, for most people in the cult, this is devastating. I've had people contact us. In fact, one of the people asked this exact question, what do you do when a family turns you over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh. How, how can you deal with this, right? Well, for me, it was not only my family, it was also my pastor, it was my support, it was my everything. This was my church, right? And fortunately for me, I am one of the few people, one of the few Christians in the United States that actually reads the Bible. I've read it I don't know how many times, over and over again. I've read from cover to cover many times. And when they did this to us, I could see in my wife's eyes that she was devastated. Why, why have they done this, right? And I, I told her something to the effect of, it's no different than if they were to drive up into our lawn and spray our windows with a water hose. Yeah, I really don't want them doing that, but it's not really affecting me that much. So for me, I was kind of, I wasn't really phased by it because I knew where I stood. I, I had some of the answers already before I asked the question, but there are a large number of people that this is devastating for. And Jesse, how do they deal with the trauma that happens to their minds when their family does this to them? Well, that's an excellent point, John. Um, the thing to keep in mind is that, uh, your, your grandfather or the pastor doesn't have that authority. <laughs> he, can't, he can't decide who goes to hell and who stays in heaven. He can't. He's trying to control your behavior by excluding you from the group to try to make you go, oh, I'm so sorry. Please let me come back in. Um, there's only one person that has that authority, and that's the person that we face a judgment. And he gets to decide then. So uh, another good way of, of dealing with stress about other people's behavior is to say, you know what? I'm not the decider. <laughs> Jesus is going to handle that when he gets up there. I got to just live my life as best I can when I believe Jesus wants me to live my life. And that takes all the judging and, oh, this and the, oh, that. And, uh, takes it all out. Leave it up to God. He's going to take care of it. We live our life the way we think the Bible, as you've read. They want us to live as a Christian in today's world and, and just let Jesus handle it. Because no pastor has the authority to condemn you to hell. 
<laughs> because they're not God. Yeah. <laughs> and so the only way that that carries weight is if you allow them to have that authority. Right. And that's only something you decide. So just keep in mind the past, no pastor from any church has the ability to condemn somebody to hell. And that's yep. none of their business, right? That's between right. you and God. And, um, you know, cult thinking routinely will not stand up to critical thinking. So questioning is really healthy, right? Using critical thinking to question why we do this or why we do that is a way of, of having healthy interactions with other people. And to say, oh, by the way, you're going to hell now. That's not very respectful, is it? <laughs> It's pretty rude and nasty. Um, now, unfortunately, in your case, you correctly assess that he didn't have that authority, and that's like or spraying water on my on my windows. There's there's nothing there, but a lot of people do think there's something there because they've been trained to think that there's something there, and that that person does have that authority when they don't. It's all about control, right? When a family member does this instead of a pastor, whenever a you know, the father tells the son or daughter that you're being turned over to Satan. It's a different dynamic because the while well, the pastor becomes the, you know, the authoritarian figure of the church that he's in, and then there's a central figure above this, it's still a hierarchy, like a pyramid. And then you have a father to son and daughter. And there's I'll try to find the picture and throw it up in the video feed of this but there's this one of my favorite memes or or pictures of a cult leader is they're standing on a cliff on this board and the entire group of people are standing on the board and then off the cliff with nothing under him is the <laughs> the cult leader the speaker and literally the only reason he's not falling off the cliff is because everybody's standing on the board they're they're holding him up right well, people who leave a cult have a tendency to walk on eggshells around family members and friends. And uh, for instance, there are the women in the cult who who wore the you know the long dresses, the long hair, etc. For years after leaving the cult, they'll if if they go around the family, they're going to put them back on so that they don't offend the family. And I, you know, it's one of those things you can't really tell somebody exactly what to do because every situation is different. But in my opinion, this works both ways. If the family is still in a cult that pushes this agenda and they, they want to force you to wear your long dresses and long hair when you're around them, well, when they come to your house, <laughs> you have the right to tell them, I'm only allowing shorts in my house. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> So, but where I'm headed with this is whenever they take you out from under the blood and all, whatever is your cult loaded language for, we're cutting you off because you're no longer a cult member. When a family member does this, you have the right to look at them as though this is a person that you just met them in Kroger one day. And you're pushing your buggy along in Kroger and you're getting your, I don't know, your soup and your, you know, whatever it is you're going to eat for the week. And some person that you don't even know walks up to you and says, you're going to hell. How would you respond? You'd probably laugh at them and think this person's crazy. They don't have this authority over me. Right. Well, a family member is no different. They have no authority over you. And. The way that you stop the person in the grocery store is you say, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you feel that way. I don't believe that way. And when you're not emotionally phased by it, the person just walks away because they, they know that they can't get under your skin. Well, when a family member does this to you and you don't show any emotional response, they're, they're going to eventually just kind of give up because they're, they're not getting anywhere with you. And... You, you just have to put it all into perspective of am I going to allow them to still remain in this controlling position over my life? Maybe you want this. I don't know. If you don't want this, then you just say, I'm sorry. I don't want to be controlled by you anymore in a nice way <laughs> and then walk away. <clears throat> um, another question we've got that came in is about the group itself 
in the cult, similar to what I've described with this family situation, there was a really, really unhealthy level of closeness. Everybody was in everybody's business. And that's kind of what leads to this weird relationship where you don't feel like you can tell the person, I'm sorry, I don't believe that anymore. Because everybody's so incredibly close together. And when they leave a cult and they enter into a new church or group or whatever is whatever it is they're getting into, normal people aren't like this. They're not in each other's business. And when they are, <laughs> people are usually saying, get back, don't get in my business. But for a cult member who, especially like me, who was raised from birth like this, the first time we entered a church and everybody wasn't in everybody's business, I thought, nobody here likes each other. <laughs> <laughs> so so how do you determine what is a healthy level of in your business and what's an unhealthy level? Well, I think that's going to vary from person to person. Um, but to explore it, what are what is the individual, the, the cult survivor, what are they comfortable with? What makes them feel safe? Because the cult, made them feel unsafe so they left and now they've got to find a new uh, level so to speak and so they can try a normal church schedule uh, once a week sermon or whatever that schedule has or if they want to just take a break from church for a while and spend time in prayer and meditation get an idea you know what whatever it is that they're they are comfortable with and be very aware of Nobody, not a new church, not not a new group or whatever, taking control, trying to control, trying to condemn, trying to manipulate, because there's a whole bunch of groups out there that are trying to do that. But there are a ton of good people going to good churches that you can go to and feel spiritually fed without being into everybody's business. Um, so that. That's something you're going to have to explore through actual uh, interaction and going to places. Do you feel comfortable in the place or not? Do you feel spiritually fed there or not? Um, and then try try to um, utilize the spiritual food that you feel you need and the interaction you feel you need versus how you were forced to before. And condemned if you didn't do it. Um, does the church send a deacon to your house if you miss the sermon? Said, brother, you're in sin. <laughs> hmm. Or do they say, hey, welcome back. Good to see you. Whenever you show up. Um, that's that's kind of a difference, right? They're, they're happy to see you versus they're condemning you and they're actually controlling you and trying to force you to go. Maybe you're on a business trip. I don't know. But um, it's going to depend, but tr again, trust your instincts on what level you need and where you feel spiritually fed. If you even need to go to church for a while in your healing process, you might need to take a break from a church assembly and spend time uh, meditating. And as you said, John, reading your Bible, trying to get clarity for yourself, doing research, uh, and then you can uh, select whatever group you feel is appropriate for you or denomination or whatever that is. But going forth without going forth without fear. Okay. Going forth with a trust in yourself, a belief in yourself that you are going to find the right answers for you and being patient. Okay. Cause there's a lot of healing has to happen. The cult, as you said, John, tremendous psychological abuse and psychological abuse is the ones that take the longest to heal those wounds because a, 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 a cut on your arm heal within a certain period of time, but it can take years for psychological wounds to heal. Right. I was laughing pretty hard when, when you said sending the deacons out to your house. <clears throat> Most people, if you're in a cult and you're listening to this, you probably don't realize this. If you've left the cult, you probably, there's a good chance that you do realize this. After you leave, there is a strong possibility that they will try very hard to send a group of men, usually men, to your door and try to bully you back into the cult or bully you into silence. 
After we left the cult, my grandfather (laughs) made one last phone call to me and said that he and a group of deacons and other brethren from the church were going to come and officially take me out from under the blood and condemn my soul to hell. And I can't remember all of the, you know, he phrased it in this weird way like you would read from a Stephen King book. (laughs) It was just so weird. And we had already been in another church for probably, goodness, I want to say it was like two or three weeks. And I just, you know, at that time, I was still under this manipulation and in my head I, I had not fully escaped it and there's this still this undue level of respect for a minister in the cult and so in the back of my head I was actually almost entertaining the idea of letting them do this and then fortunately for me I woke up and I said wait a minute he has no authority over me zero percent authority and I, I just called him back and said look you're no longer my pastor. I have a new pastor. I have now for two or three weeks. And you guys can come, but I'm not letting you in my door. <laughs> and that was, my, <laughs> that was my response. Now, since then, I've kind of, I w- probably would have phrased everything differently. I've, you know, I've grown a bit since then, but I've had numerous people contact me, usually males, usually never females, and their church does the same exact thing. They send a group of men out and they try to bully them into either silent submission or back into the cult. And for every single person that asks me, what do I do? Because they all, they all contact me and say, what do I do? I always answer this answer in this way. Do you want them to come into your house and do this? And ironically, there's a few men that say, well, yeah, it's a good opportunity to share with them that this is a cult (laughs) for those people, (laughs) for those people. I say, well, by all means, you know, if this is something that you want to do, let them in your house. But you have the power to decide for other people. They're in mortal fear. Like one guy, I, I feel so sorry for this guy. He could not eat or sleep. He was in such turmoil. I actually went out to lunch with him and just tried to give him a little of encouragement. He didn't know what to do. And I said, look, man, <laughs> you have the power to decide. Don't let them bully you if you don't want to be bullied. If you do want to be bullied and you want to show them that you can be bullied and respond in a Christian way, then let them come. You know, it's, it's ultimately up to you. Um, Another question we have, and I'm going to admit publicly that I'm a really, really bad example of this, and my wife will probably be listening, so (laughs) I'll just get it out on the open. How does one build a healthy marriage after leaving a cult? I have, as you know, Jesse, you and I have talked about it, I have this deep, burning desire to help people, and I'm one of these weird people that if there's any way I can help somebody, I'm going to go give my 500% towards them. So I spend way too much time doing this thing I do. I do try to make time for the family, and I, I set aside hours and times of the day and days of the week to do this. But I try to work hard, play hard, and try to keep a balance of work life. I actually have a job. I have a day job and helping people who have escaped the cult life and helping historians find information about it and family. But the question came in, how does one build a healthy marriage after leaving a cult? Well, it's an excellent question, John. Um, I do couples therapy several times a week. Um, I, it's really my favorite thing to do is provide couples psychotherapy Uh, It's fascinating and never boring. Um, The way you rebuild it is the way you rebuild it in in any situation. Love is demonstrated through acts of respect. We can have respect without love. We respect uh, the mayor or the governor or whatever, uh, or the boss at work, but we don't love them. But if you truly love a person, um, in this case, we're talking about your spouse, then you're going to respect them and respect their person physically. You're going to respect their psychological state. You're going to respect their hopes and dreams career wise or 
family-wise or whatever that is, and and you're going to respect um, the people that they care about. And <clears throat> respect is a two-way street. Um, and you, as you demonstrate your love through respect for your spouse, communication is key, especially um, when you've been married for a while. People tend to get into uh, ruts and doing the same thing over and over again. And then they, after a while, they tend to communicate using filters, meaning if the husband says, says X, his wife hears Y because, yeah, he said X, but what he really meant was blah, 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 right? So, and this is, a, again, happens in both directions, especially when people have been together for a while. So you use what's called reflective listening, and you sit and talk to each other, give each other at least 15 minutes to, to describe their day or whatever it is they need to talk about. And then the person listening uh, reflects back occasionally. Okay, so what I hear you saying is blah, 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 blah. And they say, yes, that's what I'm saying, or no, I, here's what I meant, right? So you can kind of eliminate those filters and have real communication. I encourage couples to use reflective listening on a daily basis, obviously without electronics, just looking at each other. I encourage date nights. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be a fancy, expensive restaurant, or you can go to the park, or go for a walk or whatever. Spending time with each other, showing that love and bonding for each other, showing that respect for each other. And it's also, as cult survivors, remember everybody coming out of it is psychologically damaged and wounded. And so each person is going to heal at their own rate. And so be kind and be understanding that your partner's uh, growth and survival away from the cult may not be the same direction or even the same pace as your own healing process. Uh, so loving, kindness, and understanding are the watchwords as you both try to make a new life outside of the cult. Um, and the cult tactic would be the opposite of that, right? Would be fear, intimidation, uh, and more abuse. So the more you trend towards love, understanding and kindness and respect, demonstrated respect, the more healing can occur. And uh, obviously um, get couples therapist if you need it. Uh, depending on your situation, you may need couples therapy or you may not. Uh, the two of you may will be able to do it on your own, but don't hesitate to get couples therapy. I, I, I help a lot of people, and it's it's uh, couples therapy can be highly effective at helping people heal from past injury, because quite often when they're in the cult, males are told to dominate the females, and they wind up hurting them. So we got that damage right between the couple, not just in the in the thing, and in particular to the message. Males were constantly held up as superior to females and that the females had to listen, uh, whatever they said. So, um, I, it varies. There was, there was some healthy couples and some very unhealthy couples, but that's true on the outside too. So love and understanding with respect, uh, and get help if you need it. Right. And one thing I'll add to that, when you're in a cult and you're being manipulated, there's this weird thing that happens because you are manipulated after the psychological profile of the central figure and you in many cases take on that attributes of that profile. You either match him fully or you match certain personality traits. For example, the out of the message cult that we escaped, the central figure was portrayed as this great hunter. And so you had all of these men in the cult who had, some of them had no natural desire to <laughs> go hunting, and they would force themselves to go hunting. And I have some crazy funny stories about men who had, no, you know, they, they were not hunters at, at all, but they, want, they wanted to because that was the imprint of the personality profile. Well, what happens is when you take, and when you assume this personality profile and you escape it, there are many cases where people who were born and raised in a cult had one psychological personality profile that wasn't theirs. 
And then after they leave and some of this programming gets out of their head, they actually shift one or two, sometimes entire categories of profiles. And that can be healthy because you're finding yourself, you're establishing yourself. But the problem is when you're married and you go one direction and your wife goes another direction, the two people who are married are not the same people that married each other. They are completely different psychological profiles. And so I've had people contact me in this situation. I'm not a marriage counselor. Never pretend to be. I recommend go get a marriage counselor. But I will say this. You have to sometimes when you're in this situation, you have to learn to love this new person that you're married to. (laughs) You almost have to go through the process of dating again and and get to know this person who you're already (laughs) married to, which is, you know, it's it's a making of a great comedy movie if you think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would would just add to that that sometimes you've got a case where one one member of the couple leaves the, the cult, but the other doesn't. And that can create some serious problems because the cult, the continued cult member will continue to abuse their partner. And so in that case, I would definitely recommend uh, going to a psychotherapist who's not associated with the cult, who knows how to do couples counseling and provide that service so you can work through what the best answer is. Now, in some cases that I know of, the best answer was divorce. Yes. I agree. And so that that might be the case. You don't, whether you're a man or a woman, you don't have to continue to be abused by your partner who did not leave the cult. Yeah, especially in the cases of abuse, there's there's no reason to allow somebody to continue to abuse you. It's it's a terrible, terrible thing. So Jesse, for these people who have escaped a cult, one of the big problems that exists is revictimization. They'll leave the cult, and because they were manipulated and because in their minds they have grown accustomed to being <laughs> ruled by fear, for lack of a better way to say it, they're, they're happy with these whips and irons in the back of their heads. And I'm, I'm overemphasizing quite a bit, but you understand the problem. They, they've been under this for so long that they navigate to other similar very destructive situations and what are some red flags for a cult what what do you look for to avoid revictimization whatever group or church that the person is approaching and and kind of maybe get to know or feel all of it um, should revolve around is this group trying to control me are they telling me well, uh, brother, if you, you know, do what we tell you, then you won't go to hell or, or the condemning aspects of your life or telling you you should drive a different car or you should go to more church services. Controlling, telling you what they think your life should be. Uh, and they don't have, that's none of their business. Now, if, if you're exploring a church, uh, just be aware. Are they ordering me to do things? Are they pressuring me to do things? Because a healthy church doesn't do that. They simply set an example of Christian love and, and a Christian life and beckon you to follow that. They don't go around pointing fingers and saying you're a bad person. They just don't. So um, the control aspects, are they trying to control me? Are they trying to um, force me to give uh, money to this or that, that they uh, programs or missions or whatever? Most churches are going to ask for money. But if they come and condemn you for not giving the money they think you ought to give, that's a totally different thing. Asking for money and condemning for not or not enough or not fast enough. That's not right. So it's a control thing. If 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 it's a loving community, they're not going to run around pointing fingers. Yeah, they're just going to set an example of living a Christian lifestyle, and and hopefully, you know, they 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 become the light, right? Instead of flaming other people, they they become the light. Yeah, uh, the red flags are control. Are right. they trying to control you, your money, and your behavior, and 
your dress and everything else. You can't see it. I'm, I'm in my, my music room doubles as my office, and this is the playroom. This is where all the magic happens for the um, music that you hear in the intro in this podcast and the background music and the others. But through there's a door over here behind my head, and right around that door is this nice big bottle of dog treats. And whenever people ask me this question about is it healthy or not, I use the dog example. My dog is a great dog. He's one of the best dogs I've ever met. We were very fortunate. And if my dog, if I'm wanting to teach it something, I'll give it a treat. And, you know, this dog will do anything for a treat. I can make, I can make her stand up. I can make her do anything. And when she's misbehaving, I can train her by giving her a treat. And she's happy. She wants that treat. She, <laughs> she will do anything for that treat. On the flip side, if I didn't have this and I were just to scold the dog and say, you're the lowest form of a dog, you're the worst dog I've ever had and just, you know, beat it or whatever I would do. There's no way this dog's going to mind me. No way this dog's going to improve in any way, shape or form. It's a dog. And the sad shame of this, Jesse, is that we were in a set of rules and manipulations and strategies where we were actually treated worse than a dog. My dog is treated better than I was for the first 37 years of my life. I'm sad, sad to say this, right? <clears throat> and I tell people this example, if you go to a new church and they're treating you like a dog, <laughs> well, you probably shouldn't be there. <laughs> so, right. and, and really um, in control churches, you'll often see um, senior people and other people not not living what they say the other members have to live. Rules for thee, not for me. That happened pretty frequently. When somebody's not a real Christian, they're going to have their own set of rules for themselves um, and a, a lifestyle they can live, uh, who they can be with and who they can't be with. And they just they just make up their own rules, but they tell everybody else how they got to live, or they'll pretend to live by the set of rules, but behind the scenes they're not. Because they don't believe it themselves. It's manipulative effort only. So, um, yes, it's a, it's a good uh, analogy with the dog. Yeah. <laughs> Along with the rules, one of the problems that exists when we were so heavily bound by rules, we were in a rules-based religion, as most cults are. And... When you're in, in this mindset, you're not thinking about the gospel. The, go the word gospel just simply means the good news. The good news that Jesus came and he died for you and now you can be saved. Instead, you're thinking the rules gospel. You're thinking, what can I do to earn my salvation? And this creates a huge problem with regards to parenting because we were given all of these legalistic sets of rules of how we could earn our own salvation. But when you leave a cult and you realize that, number one, a majority of these rules have nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. Number two, a lot of them are just way over the top, way too controlling. And, and, and really, a Christian isn't concerned with some of these things. Then you enter into this weird world as a parent where, where do I draw the line? What do I allow my kids to do? Because you watch your kids doing things that, number one, you were never, ever, ever allowed to do. And if you did, you were going to hell, buddy. <laughs> and where do you draw the line? Where do you find, where do you find normal as a parent? And I'll be honest, this is something that I don't care how much research I pour into this, Jesse. I can't figure this one out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I often um, I see people struggling with family relations the most who are uh, have an engineering background um, because when it comes to civil engineering or just engineering of any kind, there's very hard rules for uh, building a computer, uh, getting the right programming, write the program, build the bridge build the road and two plus two is always four it's not sometimes 5.6 it's not sometimes 3.2 it's always four and that's a very safe thing 
However, relationships are not that way. Relationships operate. There's no standard operating procedure manual for relationships. Relationships happen in gray areas, not black and white of numbers, which are safe, which, like you said, the church is full of rules, black and white. Going to hell, not going to hell. Uh, but the truth is, the world and people interact in, in very large gray areas where there are no rules. And you, as you move forward uh, by being understanding and thoughtful and kind, uh, the parenting model, for example, that is authoritarian is very rules-based, like authoritarian is military style. Shut up. Do what I said. Don't ask questions, <laughs> right? That's authoritarian model that's being used by the cult, right? Or by, you know, somebody's dad that was in the military and that's his style he's adopted. But the authoritative model is really the most recognized as the best parenting model. And it's where the parent is involved and they do have the final say, but they explain and they teach and instruct and encourage rather than order, right? Yeah. Um, and the, the, they let the child as it grows participate in uh, what they want to wear and what toys they want to play with and uh, participate in more food selection. And as they grow older and grow more, more mature, their, their ability to participate continues to grow. And it's used as an instructional model and a guiding model rather than a bash them on the head model. Um, and so that, that's what I look to as far as how, um, family relationships are not about fast and solid rules. Now there's some things that have to be fast and solid, right? Uh, no domestic violence, right? <laughs> we can all agree. <laughs> that's a, that's a hard rule. No domestic violence It's completely unacceptable from brother to sister or brother to brother or kid to parent or parent to parent, period, right? But there's other things about food preferences, about uh, play times, or it, and it's going to vary from family to family, but allowing somebody to be who they are, uh, as long as everything is respectful, then that requires understanding that there's a gray area here and allowing them to be who they are rather than ordering them to sit and read a book, even though they don't want to sit and read a book right now. Well, thank you, Jesse. This has been extremely helpful and um, I've learned a lot. I know our listeners will have learned a lot just, you know, for me, just talking through some of these things, I think talking about what you went through is just as helpful as therapy in, in some cases, because mentally you're forced to think through it and you're critically thinking about these things. And just me talking to you is, <laughs> has been therapy for me. So thank you for coming on and, and answering these. Well, that's actually um, a very real thing, John. Um, people talking to their therapist, just expressing what they've been through and just sharing their story in the first you know, a couple of sessions or something is itself therapeutic. I think people, if they felt a fence post was listening and cared, they would get relief from talking to a fence post. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just having somebody who listens and cares can be very therapeutic. I, I think you're right on the money there, John. I'm glad you experienced that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, if you have questions and you want us to answer them on the show, send them in to us. Uh, you can contact us at william-branham.org. And if you want to contact Dr. Jesse Collins, you can find him on Psychology Today or through LinkedIn. For more information about the history behind the Latter Rain movement that I escaped, you can read Weaponized Religion from Latter Rain to Colonia Dignidad, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. 